Good morning. Great to see you all today and to be here with you to share God's word. I'm so excited to have the opportunity to, to preach today. Please open up in your New Testament to the book of John, chapter 3. John, chapter 3, read verses 1 through 17. This is a passage that might be familiar to a number of you. We're going to dissect it some, um, but I think, I think there's, there's just a lot of truth here that we can look at this morning. John chapter 3, beginning of verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it is coming from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Benjamin Franklin was a great inventor. He was also a great statesman. He was also a great correspondent. And he received letters from many famous individuals from all over the world. One day he received a letter from the British preacher George Whitfield. Whitfield wrote the following. I find that you grow more and more famous in the learned world. As you have made such progress in investigating the mysteries of electricity, I now humbly urge you to give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. It is a most important and interesting study, and when mastered, will richly repay you for your pains. How impressive. George Whitfield writing a letter to Benjamin Franklin, humbly urging him to consider the new birth. What a great example for us. That's what I want to talk about this morning, the new birth. This passage is primarily about the conversation between a man by the name of Nicodemus and Jesus. Now, let's take a look and see what we can learn about Nicodemus before we get into our points about the new birth. 
First of all, in verse 1, he is described as a man of the Pharisees. Uh, the Jewish men known as Pharisees were extremely religious, impeccably meticulous with regard to issues of the ceremonial fine points of the law. There were approximately 6,000 Pharisees in existence at the time of Herod the Great. And the Pharisees were often in conflict with Jesus, and Jesus would rebuke them. They thought that they were righteous before God and that everything was good before, before God and that they would have a future in heaven. Jesus, however, said at one time in Matthew chapter 5, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Much of their lives were wrapped around the externals of the law rather than the heart. They were interested in doing the right thing outwardly, but their hearts were often far from God. Not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, he, he was also seen as, labeled here, as a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was a member of what is called the Sanhedrin. Some have said it's 70 members, some have said 71, different views as to the exact number, but this was the Jewish ruling council, and the Sanhedrin was responsible for religious decisions as well as civil rule under the Romans. This was a big-time position. And Nicodemus and the others would probably be, as they walk down the road, someone would probably look and say, ah, oh, that's Nicodemus. He's one of the Sanhedrin members. And then in verse 9, notice what he's called. Jesus calls them the teacher of Israel, not a teacher of Israel. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? He had a place of prominence in some way within the Sanhedrin as a teacher. He is labeled here as the teacher of Israel. So he's an extremely religious man, legalistic, extremely knowledgeable of the Old Testament law, a member of the Sanhedrin, the teacher of Israel. What else can we learn about him? Verse 2, this man came to Jesus when? By night. He didn't come during the day. He came by night. Now, why would he have come to Jesus by night? Perhaps his reputation would have been on the line if he met with Jesus and other people saw that in a public way because they didn't really get along too well, to put it mildly. Jesus spoke the truth to the Pharisees all the time. And what would be the implications if Nicodemus met with Jesus privately? What might the Pharisees think? Might what the members of the Sanhedrin think? He's also called in verse 2, Rabbi. One respectful greeting from one rabbi to another. And he also says, this is interesting, he says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. He doesn't say, I know, but he says, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. Perhaps referring to the other members of the Sanhedrin, other Pharisees, other Jewish people. But none of them recognized who he really was. Notice his assumption here. We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. James Montgomery Boyce makes a fascinating statement when he says, the one thing that Jesus was not was a teacher sent from God. There had been thousands of teachers sent from God in the previous history of the world, and there have been thousands of teachers since. He was not one of them. They were teachers sent from God. He was God sent to teach and to die, and to rise again. 
Notice that Nicodemus was extremely impressed with Jesus. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. These signs that Jesus performed were not done in a, in a closet. In fact, in John chapter 2, we read it, one of the signs where Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 11, it says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. In verse 23 of chapter 2, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. So these signs were evident to all the people. They were evident to Nicodemus. And that's probably what's causing him to approach Jesus and say, Who are you? These signs show that you must be from God, but he only saw him as a teacher. These signs, by the way, the book of John revolves around these signs, okay? So if ever you want someone to see who Jesus is, have them read the Gospel of John. If any of you are looking to see who Jesus is, read the Gospel of John, because John writes in John chapter 20, Therefore many of the signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, there are four points that I want to make this morning about the new birth. The first one is this. There is the necessity of the new birth. We must, we must be born again. This point is made absolutely clear three times in our text. Look at verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And verse 7, he said, Do not be amazed, Nicodemus, that I said to you, and this is actually in plural, ye must be born again. Not only you, but perhaps the others in the Sanhedrin, the other Pharisees, the Jews, but ye need to be born again. Cannot, cannot, and must. And this is very relevant when we think, when we think about who Nicodemus was. Okay? He was an extremely religious man, impeccable with regard to the, the law and seeking to follow the law. They even made their own laws on top of all the laws that God had given to them. J. Vernon McGee says, Now here's a man, a Pharisee, who was religious to his fingertips, and yet our Lord told him he couldn't see the kingdom of God except he be born again. So if being religious was the key, Nicodemus would have been good to go. If inquisitiveness was the key, Nicodemus would have been all set. If knowledge was the key, Nicodemus would have been heaven bound. But he wasn't. Jesus said, ye must be born again. The Apostle Paul was in that same category, wasn't he? When we think of Paul in Philippians chapter 3, and he speaks of himself by his own admission, he says he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But he didn't have Christ. And Nicodemus didn't have Christ. 
And Paul said, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have lost, count as lost for the sake of Christ. The issue is not religiosity. The issue is regeneration. And we'll talk about that momentarily. Now, what is Jesus referring to when he speaks about the kingdom of God? In verse 3, he says, he says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And verse 5, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. What do you mean by the kingdom of God? The Jewish people divided time into two ages, the present and the future, the age to come. The age to come would include participating in the millennial kingdom, which was highly anticipated by the Jews and by the Pharisees. And this, this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven, would also include eternal life. Because we see that mentioned by Jesus here also in verse 15, that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. That is a part of the kingdom, the future kingdom of God. Now, in verse 3, Jesus speaks about being born again. Let me clarify something here. Being born again. The Greek phrase translated born again literally means born from above. And that phrase can be translated either born again or born from above. And yet it's interesting that when Jesus speaks of this in verse 3, Nicodemus responds with the understanding that Jesus is referring to literally being reborn physically. So that's how Nicodemus understood Jesus' words. So it's possible Jesus meant that phrase to be taken in that way, except with the concept of being spiritually reborn. Of course, not physically reborn. And what about the phrase born-again Christians? How often do we hear that phrase? Over the years, I've heard it many times. People say, I am a born-again Christian. As if to say there was some other kind of Christian. There is no other kind of Christian. You're either born again or you're not. If you are truly a Christian, if you are truly a disciple of Christ, you have been born again. The Bible makes no other distinction in terms of being a Christian. That phrase born again is also found in 1 Peter chapter 1 where Peter makes this amazing statement. It's the Greek word anaginaho where Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Being born again is absolutely a biblical term. And as we're talking about being born again or born from above, let's realize that we're not talking about developing a better life for ourselves, like 10 steps for a better you, okay? Now, there might be some truth to some of those steps that might improve some of the things that we do or how we are. But we're not talking about self-renovation. We're not talking about rebuilding ourselves. We're not talking about turning over a new leaf. We're talking about becoming a new person, having a new nature. The Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And when we're born again, we receive a new nature. We become new people. We are very different from who we used to be. And no change that a person can make on his or her own outside of Jesus Christ and receiving that new, new nature can duplicate what that new nature can bring about in your life or my life. 
You cannot reproduce that. Only God can produce that in our lives. I remember a story, this might not be exact, but it was a a communist who was speaking one day in in London, and he was speaking to the crowd, and there was an individual there who was in a a tattered suit, some tattered clothes, and the communist said in his statement, he said, given the opportunity, communism would put a new suit on that man. And a Christian spoke up and said, given the opportunity, Christianity would put a new man in that suit. You see the difference? A total inward change when we are born again. Before we move to the next point, one other thing I want to mention here. What does water and the Spirit mean in verse 5? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, there are a lot of explanations for that. Let me just share a couple of them with you. Some would refer, refer to that water as referring to baptism. And baptism would then be a part of regeneration, that being born again, being born a second time. But there's no way that that's true. Baptism in the New Testament is not a means of salvation. Rather, it occurs after one has been saved. Remember, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. They become disciples first. They are baptized following Some might say that water could refer to natural birth. As in verse 6, Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. But that doesn't really make any sense because why would Jesus talk about the need to be born in the flesh when we already are born, when the people he's, he's addressing already are here? It really doesn't make sense. Some would say that the water refers to the word of God and would cite Ephesians chapter 5 where it says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Some would say that the water refers to a spiritual washing or purification of the soul that occurs when you're born again. Some would say that the water refers to the Holy Spirit, where John, in John chapter 7, Jesus said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit. And some would equate this water with the repentance ministry of John the Baptist. I I personally like that view. There's a lot of good and godly people that have different views. I I particularly like that one. Um, John the Baptist focused on a ministry as a forerunner of Christ on the whole issue of repentance. He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Um, Repentance was what John the Baptist was about. And he was always pointing people to Jesus, not to himself. And so, Nicodemus would certainly have known about John the Baptist. We see in in John chapter 1, actually, the Pharisees sent individuals to ask the question of John the Baptist, who are you? Okay? So, Nicodemus, the group, they they knew who Jesus was. And then also in Luke chapter 7, it says that, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. They were on the other side of the fence when it came to John the Baptist. But that that view makes sense to me. Unless one is born of water, the idea of being a repentant spirit, a repentant heart, and being reborn, he cannot enter. Being born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Repentance and rebirth. So we see, first of all, the necessity, the must of the new birth. 
It's absolutely essential if one wants to be saved and enter into the kingdom of God. Secondly, what is the agent of the new birth? If we must be born again or born from above, how does that happen? Notice verse 5. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Notice verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit, born of the Spirit, is spirit. And then verse 8. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Three times Jesus refers to being born of the Spirit of God. The agent of the new birth is God, the Holy Spirit. He is the one who draws men and women and children to himself. You and I do not have the capacity within ourselves to come to Christ. We must be born of the Spirit. Look at chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. John writes, But as many as received him, they gave him the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are born of God. We are born of the Spirit of God. He is the agent by which we come to Jesus Christ. And so our point here is that, is that there is a divine side of salvation. We do not bring about the new birth on our own. We are born of the Holy Spirit. We are born of God. God himself is the agent. There is a divine enabling that has to take place in order for a person to come to Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself said this in John 6. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. There are many things that you and I are capable of, but the new birth is not one of them. We are not capable of bringing it upon ourselves. There's a story that stood out to me over the years, and it's a story found in Acts chapter 16, where the Apostle Paul was talking to a group of women in Philippi. They were by a gate by a riverside, and the woman named Lydia was there. And the Bible says that she was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. And the reality is that that should give us some comfort in our lives. We desperately want our friends, our loved ones, and our enemies to come to Jesus Christ. But we cannot do that on our own. We are responsible to share the gospel, to share the gospel through the world, to give, to pray, to go, to do what we can in the power of the Holy Spirit, but we have to leave the results up to God. And if you're a believer today, you would probably be able to look back. I know I can in my own life. And I can say that when I came to Christ at probably the age of 14, something happened in my mind and in my heart that I did not create. It was a realization that I was a sinful boy and that I needed Christ. I had been baptized as a baby. I had Sunday school attendance awards. I went to church all the time. But I wasn't saved. I needed to make that decision myself. And so God worked in my heart, and as he probably worked in many of your hearts, to draw you to himself himself. 
And the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit's task, and he says, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. J.I. Packer makes this excellent statement in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He says, however clear and cogent we may be in presenting the gospel, we have no hope of convincing or converting anyone. Can you or I, by our earnest talking, break the power of Satan over a man's life? No. Can you or I give life to the spiritually dead? No. Can we hope to convince sinners of the truth of the gospel by patient explanation? No. Can we hope to move men to obey the gospel by any words of entreaty that we may utter? No. Our approach to evangelism is not realistic till we have faced this shattering fact and let it make its proper impact on us. We have obstacles. Mankind has obstacles of sin and of Satan. We are all under the influence of sin. We are drawn that way. That is our bent. We want to go that way, the way of our heart outside of Christ. And then we're also slaves of Satan. He blinds the minds of the unbelieving so they may not see the glory of Christ. So there's those issues of sin that the non-believer has and Satan that the non-believer has. And of course, we still have two. We have a new nature now. But only God can bring that individual to him or herself. Charles Wesley wrote the hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? He wrote it shortly after he was converted, possibly the day after. And these were his words. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what happens with the miracle of the new birth. God does a work in our mind and in our heart. So what is the means of the new birth? The means of the new birth is very simply the word of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Peter says, For you have been born again, how? Not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. It is through the living word of God that we are brought to new life in Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We read that word and we're convicted and brought to faith. And Paul calls that word of God the very sword of the spirit. All right, let's continue before we move into our last point. Let's get back to our text. Verse 4. Nicodemus' response is one of amazement. Jesus said, do not be amazed that I said to you, ye must be born again. Again, Nicodemus and more people beyond Nicodemus. Ye must be born again. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. There's sort of a mystery here and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it is coming from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And notice this phrase, And do not understand these things. Okay, so first of all, Nicodemus didn't understand. 
Go on. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. And ye, again, this is plural, ye do not accept our testimony. Nicodemus didn't understand. Nicodemus didn't accept. He was not born again. He was not going to enter the kingdom of God. There was no rebirth. Now notice what happens here in verse 13. Jesus makes an incredible statement. He said, no one has, and he's talking to Nicodemus here, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Nicodemus comes to Jesus thinking he's a teacher. All of a sudden, Jesus says, I descended from heaven. I'm not merely a teacher. I am the Son of Man. And in John chapter 1, we recall these words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14, it says, and the Word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, with the Father, God himself becoming man. He, tell, he tells Nicodemus, I descended from heaven. Could you imagine, you come to me and say, hey, where are you from? Oh, I'm, not, I'm not from Stafford. I'm, I'm not from Fredericksburg. I descended from heaven. I mean, could you imagine somebody making that statement and not being true? And then living the life that Jesus lived and the statements that he made and dying for our sins and being raised from the dead. I mean, Jesus made some amazing statements. He was the Son of God. He was Emmanuel, God with us, also known as the Son of Man. And he could rightly speak about heavenly things because that's where he came from. One more thought about the new birth. The requirement for the new birth. How is a person born from above? How is a person born again? Verse 14. Jesus says to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What is that about? Jesus would know, not Jesus, Nicodemus would know from Numbers chapter 21 that Jesus was referring to a story back in that text. The people of Israel had sinned against God. And the Bible says the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, you got to help us. you got to intercede for God. We have sinned against God and we have, have, have spoken against you. So the Lord told Moses and said, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. Moses did that. And the Bible says if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. The point? Jesus had a mission. Notice in verse 14, he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus had to go on that cross and die. That was his mission, to die on the cross for the sins of the world. To die for my sins and for yours. As Paul says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? He came into the world to save sinners, you and I. The Israelites would look and be healed. We need to look at the cross and believe in the Jesus on that cross 
and be saved from the penalty of our sins. And as Jesus says in verse 15, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And then it says in verse 16, these are either Jesus' words or John as he writes them, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's not an issue of believing in God. It's an issue of believing in him, in Jesus Christ. The requirement is belief in Christ. What about Nicodemus? Nicodemus may have come to faith in Christ. The reason I can say that is because in John chapter 19, he's involved with Joseph of Arimathea, dealing with the dead body of our Savior. Joseph had said to Pilate, asked if he could take away the body of Jesus, and he came and took away the body, and the Bible says that Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And the text says that both men laid Jesus there in that new tomb in the garden. Why would Nicodemus do that? Is it possible that as Jesus died on that cross, Nicodemus recalled the words of Jesus, that Jesus must be lifted up and saw the reality of who Jesus really was. Perhaps that's how he came to faith. Perhaps before that, we don't know. But he may have come to faith in Christ. Seeing Jesus not merely as a teacher, but as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. George Whitfield to Benjamin Franklin, I now humbly urge you to give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. Are you born again? Have you come to personal faith, personal faith in Christ? It's not an issue of your religiosity. It's not about your attendance towards a church. It's not about how often you read the Bible. Do you believe in Jesus as your Savior? I think of the words of Paul in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. That's what it boils down to. If you feel the tug of God the Holy Spirit on your mind and heart today, please respond and believe and accept the gift of eternal life in Christ. Let's pray.